Good morning and welcome to uh, the second uh, mezzanine panel discussion since we've been back in person uh, coming off of our, uh, well, COVID hiatus. Uh, we have had uh, two sermon series. Uh, this last sermon series has been the uh, sermon series in the Mountain of Salt, City of Light uh, sermon series, and it has been over the past 10 weeks or two and a half months that we have been going through this series. Uh, my name is, is Eric. I'm on staff here at Trinity Heights Church, and uh, we are a church here in New York City, a community of Christians and skeptics. So it's always a pleasure to host uh, these discussions. Typically, uh, over the, the past five years, uh, we've done these, these roundtable discussions. But one of the things that we've done recently is we've actually added this panel discussion component to kind of jumpstart the ideas. Uh, these are long series, uh, and it's really hard to remember, I think, uh, looking back all the way to part one, which, which was two and a half months ago, exactly what was said. And so uh, it's, it's great to, to open up the conversation uh, and have these 10-minute uh, panels right in the beginning so that you guys can then just take it from there. And that's really uh, our goal this morning is to just offer you um, some places where you can just kind of hook yourself in and understand uh, some of these concepts uh, right it's off the It's helpful for me too because I don't remember what I yeah, said. Yeah, exactly. You remember. <laughs> Uh, well, looking back all the way to part one, and, I, and this has been kind of repeated over the, the course of this series, but uh, one of the things that I couldn't get out of my head, uh, and it was, I mean, within the first five minutes of, of that first um, sermon, Stephen, you said, a mountain isn't just a mountain, and then you proceeded to kind of open up all of the New Testament and pinpoint some key moments there, and I'd like you to comment. Yeah, I mean, so so the, the idea is that there are all of these moments in Israel's history where it seems that uh, Israel's future is about to close, and there isn't going to, tomorrow's not going to come, the curtains, it's curtains for them, uh, or for Israel or for humanity, and so you have, um, and, and, then, and then there is this, very often there's this mountain which becomes the backdrop and the threshold of God's intervention on, the, on their behalf. So you have Mount Ararat with Noah, you have Abraham on Mount Moriah, um, Elijah on Mount Carmel. I think the most important is probably uh, Moses on Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when you then start looking at what Jesus is doing by going, when he says he goes up to the mountainside and starts teaching, uh, suddenly we realize that this is not just the incidental backdrop for Jesus' teaching, but it's actually part of his teaching, part of his message. And what he's inviting us to do is to see himself and the sermon as part of God's intervention on, on, humanity's, on humanity's behalf, which is very different from what often happens with this sermon. So what often happens is um, it's either we're given this choice. Is this the set of rules that we've got to follow in order to uh, save ourselves, or is it illustrative material showing, look, no one can possibly follow all these rules all of the time, so therefore right. um, we, we, it's an illustration that you need a savior. Uh, so is it illustrative material or is it the rules we need to save ourselves? Well, neither. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got to stop it being sucked into that vortex of me and my personal salvation. And we're brought into this more collective thinking of God's intervention on humanity's behalf. Right, right. Well, Mercy, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I wonder if you had anything to add to what Stephen said. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think, yeah, the mountain as an intervention uh, was something that really stood out to me early in the series but not as an intervention of sort of power over human beings. Mm -hmm. um, it's, instead, it's 
a moment where Jesus takes us outside that loop of what Stephen calls enforcing the doctrine of grace um, <laughs> with sort of trite phrases. And it, it kind of gives power back or empowers um, ordinary actions or actions between ordinary people, acts of graciousness. Um, and that was something that, that was really impactful for me. And then I think, you know, within that, being reminded that we have that ability to speak into one another's lives, um, to show grace to one another is good news because one, it, it kind of um, takes us out of a self-conscious existence. Mm. And then also, you know, we have the ability to um, share good news with anyone and it can be a life, uh, a life-changing moment rather than sort of, well, this is, you know, so you can be reconciled one day or so you can go to heaven, which doesn't, um, doesn't necessarily meet people where they are in the midst of struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think thinking of the mountain in that way was, yeah, was very impactful for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, something that, that roots us in reality, I, I think, is, is something that I was continually coming back to and how Jesus... Um, it is a mountain intervention, but it's a mountain intervention that's affirming um, life together or, and, and, and how we might go about uh, with, with that posture uh, of peace. Um, I think with the groundwork laid that the Sermon on the Mount was an act of an intervention on behalf of, of, of humanity, God specifically intervening, um, and not just a moral, a, a list of kind of moral rules or things that we needed to follow, uh, but more of an actual seismic event or, or that shakes the world at its very core or, like, or shifts everything. I, I, think I'd, I, I think it would be good to talk about Jesus's phrase, blessed are, that repeated phrase. Um, and, and Mercy, if you could respond to that again. Yeah, maybe. that was, um, I mean, I enjoyed all of your messages, but that was probably one of my <laughs> favorites just because I think reframing the Beatitudes is a really... Um, yeah, it's a really hopeful reflection. So there were several different phrases, but flourishing are you was, I think, the one that we kind of focused on and that stood out to me. So flourishing are you when you are merciful mm. because the world is, uh, you know, unjust, violent, or, um, you know, that I think is a way to see the world as it is, mm. not to kind of have rose-colored glasses on and, and understand the world that we live in, but also... Um, it provides tools for intervention into the world as it is. So rather than becoming a set of rules, the Beatitudes are actually uh, very actionable um, things. Yeah. And I think, um, and that's very kind of you, by the way, I'm, I'm not sure I enjoyed all my messages, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, I, would, I would say that um, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that Jesus is, is sort of accused of being this pie in the sky when you die. You, you, life will be better off when you're dead in God and you're in Never Never Land. And, and you know, obviously, Marx famously says Christianity is opium of the people and, and yada, yada. Uh, and it's true, Jesus talks about the, the kingdom of heaven and he talks about um, being children of God. But he also, in, in the Beatitudes, another one is, is you will inherit the earth. And so the idea is certainly not to sort of escape, um, which is what you've, you've been pointing to, but, but this sort of back and forth between um, transcendence and imminence, mm. and imminence and transcendence and back again, so that, that we're sort of 
pulling together these two seemingly disparate realities of heaven and earth, we're pulling them together. And, and there's this wonderful vision in, in uh, John's revelation where he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and we talked about this, how there's essentially what happens is there's this, this marriage between heaven and earth, as if heaven and earth were made for each other, and Jesus is essentially saying, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Heaven and earth are made for each other, and I want you to become that nexus point, that bridge, that, that touching point where heaven and earth actually meet. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I listened to a, an N.T. Wright lecture recently, and, and he was saying that we, we forget that, that mm. from the beginning, heaven and earth have always been knit together, and we mm. have ten, tended to, to separate them in our yeah. minds, but that just hasn't been the case. Uh, Stephen, I really loved uh, when you talked about how salt and light aren't just salt and light, speaking of kind of knitting things together, mm. and, uh, and you, you said, no, it's something else. It, it actually is the glue that, that binds us together and, and, and God as well. And, and, you know, the salt and light is, is something that, I, you know, I'd, I'd read through the Old Testament. I've, mm -hmm. I've done this for years where it talks about covenant of salt. Um, we eat the salt from your palace, therefore we want to help you. Right. And it's like, I just went over my head. I was just, okay, whatever, mm -hmm. and then carry on reading. But to, to realize that this is actually the symbol of God's covenant, God's promise, God's commitment, mm -hmm. and, and, that, and that actually... Um, when we overlay that onto Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, we suddenly feel the weight of that because he's essentially saying you are going to fulfill God's covenant and promise and, and, and you, you're the embodiment of God's promise and covenant mm -hmm. and, and commitment mm -hmm. to creation, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is quite challenging for people like us because, of course, we're, um, you know, we've talked before about how we're, we're, we've, we're a sort of culture which elevates our freedom above everything else. Mm -hmm. I must be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and nothing and no one must ever interrupt that. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus is talking about promise and commitment and covenant, and that's, that's, that's pulling in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, another thing, and I, I kind of wanted to throw a curveball here, but when, when God says, uh, okay, you are the embodiments of, of my promise on earth. Is he, is he saying, oh, well, I'm not going to keep my promises. You have to keep them for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know why you're saying that. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Mercy? No, <laughs> 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 uh, no actually, so, so I, I don't, I know why he's saying that. And I don't, I don't think it can be any other way. Because if you think, what, what is God's promise? God's promise is he's going to fill the earth with his image, mm. right? His, his image of love, compassion, kindness. And he's going to rule the earth, rule creation through that same image of love, compassion, and kindness. So if his promise is to fill the earth with his image and um, rule through that image, mm. and we are his image bearers, then God's promise can't be fulfilled apart from us. It has to be fulfilled in us and through us. So there is, it, it, there's no other way for it to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Otherwise, I, God wouldn't be keeping his promise. Sure, sure. So promises through, it, through the context of, of relationship or, or, you know, I, I think it's interesting too because I've been thinking a lot about um, this idea of, of God or even Christ sort of aligning himself with people and affirming their humanity uh, kind of on a ground level, maybe even before they were doing it for themselves, like the, the, the fullness of, the, of their humanity, potentially. And I, I, I mean, I always have to throw these kind of like studio metaphors in, in here. Sorry, guys. I mean, it's like an art thing for me. But I think um, uh, in, the, in the art studio, I've worked with, with students and, and interns um, in, in the past. And a lot of them come in and they're just terrified. They have no idea what they're gonna, how they're going to achieve what I want them to ask. I, I show them what I want them to paint. They're like, yeah, there's no way I could possibly do that. And I, you know what? I say, you know what? There is. You're going to do it. But it's not, you're not going to do this by yourself. I'm actually going to be with you the entire time. I'm going to be informing every single hour of your work. I'm going to be here. Uh, and it's like that promise and that commitment, me binding myself to them, that actually within a number of weeks allows them to 
produce something that they didn't even think that they, that they could. So there is a sort of collaborative effort and um, this fullness of, of creation or this fullness of beauty that comes about because of covenant and promise. And, um, mercy. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I think, you know, commitments, commitments can be scary because they rule out other possibilities and that, you know, is what you're deciding to do. Um, but I think, you know, there's also such an opportunity to bring peace into a relationship because you've, you know, made a decision um, to stick with somebody. Mm. And I love the example that you shared because having that assurance of support um, with no strings attached. I mean, maybe you had strings attached. I don't know, but mm. <laughs> um, no. no I, but um, yeah. it's it's, uh, it's something that allows people to live into a, a place of clarity and, and their values. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just thinking about that covenant relationship, it, it also made me reflect on the importance of time and, and the longevity of your commitments and how, you know, over time those promises, they're building mm-hmm. networks of trust with people and with community. Yeah. Stephen, you have anything to add there? Um, no, I mean, that's, that's beautifully put. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's just pivot quickly. Uh, there was one word, Stephen, that that you brought up, and I thought it was uh, very poignant, uh, and this was about halfway through the, the sermon series, and this was the idea that Jesus himself was the denouement of all of history, specifically Jewish history, and you were used the word the law and the prophets. It's, it's a little bit more, so when, when, it's a little bit more inspirational than I've come to, to mm-hmm. be the perfect rule follower, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think sometimes when we hear Jesus say, I am the fulfillment of the law and the mm-hmm. prophets, we think, oh, he's going to follow all the 613 rules of the Torah perfectly and exactly mm-hmm. how they should be followed. Um, and I, th- I think actually what, what the phrase the law and the prophets was like like a Jewish shorthand mm-hmm. for referring to the entire story mm. of God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation as told in Jewish literature. So, so it's essentially him saying, it would be like someone saying, I've come to fulfill uh, English literature or I've come to fulfill Russian literature, which is a weird, that was a very strange thing to say. Uh, but he's essentially saying, I've come to fulfill, I'm, the, I'm that place where all the threads of this story mm-hmm. um, of, human, of Israel and humanity are being, are being gathered up and, they're, and they're, it's all converging on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is, yeah, again, uh, slightly more in- interesting than I'm the perfect rule follower. Right, and, and it kind of opens up the entire uh, narrative, doesn't it? I, I, I heard someone say recently that they like to read the Bible big and it, all of a sudden you, you have Jesus sort of pointing to this, this way of, of reading and to me that, that is incredibly compelling and... Um, so I guess on that point, uh, we'd like to open the discussion to all of you. Um, go ahead and take the next 10 to 15 minutes to, um, to kind of hash things out. We have uh, four questions here that you can use as guides as you talk. And uh, I'll give you about a 30-second warning towards the end of that time, and uh, we'll move on. Sounds like the conversations were great. I hope, I hope that was the case. Sounded lively, at least. <laughs>
Well, we're going to move on to the second half of, of the sermon series, and um, right now uh, we have Ben uh, joining us. Ben is actually married to Mercy, and uh, they've been coming to Trinity Heights for how long now? Since August? Since August. Six, six months? Wow, it's gone yeah. fast. <laughs> it has gone fast. Uh, I remember well, when you first came in, I gave you a big hug, because <laughs> I thought you were someone else. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was wearing a mask. So. <laughs> Steve and I got to know each other real fast. First day. It was love at first sight, right? <laughs> uh, well, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. This for morning. sure. Yeah. yeah. Stephen, it seems to me that the second half of uh, Mountain of Salt, City of Light, uh, was spent exploring ideas in and around the ways that Jesus views human integrity. And I think... Uh, looking over kind of what you said, it's very easy for us to embrace outward integrity or the appearance of having things together. Uh, but Jesus is actually pushing for a more holistic view, a matching up of our inner and outer lives. Yeah, so I, you know, I think, and I think I talk about this, that there's, it's a different, it's a real challenge for, I think, for people like us and our, I mean, cultural context, because there's always going to be a gap between our inner life and our outer life. But I, I think that our culture sort of nurtures that gap and grows it because it, it's, it's so much about per, performative virtue signaling. Did, you know, for example, did you post a black square? Did you post a Ukrainian flag? Did you, did you post mm-hmm. your vaccine status? And, and I'm not saying these things aren't important, but I think these are hijacked and used for, for, for other ends. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's always, are you with the, the latest thing? Are you on board with the latest thing? Mm-hmm. And the latest thing is largely determined by the the major cultural institutions that we have. So there's an incredible alignment between all those institutions. So it it could be um, the intelligence community, it could be the establishment politicians, it could be um, big tech, it could be Hollywood. I mean, these are these media, but all of these major institutions share a very, they're very aligned in their political, moral, social outlooks. And when you have that kind of uniformity amongst our major cultural institutions, and that there's a sense in which the individual knows, ah, if I don't align, if I don't post my Ukrainian flag, right, if I don't, and, and our, our government doesn't care what's happened to Ukraine, they're, they're using the Ukraine for, for the, the, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. We won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but, but when, when, when it becomes, if you don't post, if, if I don't align myself with these things, there's going to be a, a, a social cost to me. Um, that is going to create a situation where there's going to be this growing gap and chasm between my inner life and my outer life. Right. And you kind of talked about mask wearing or, or putting on these, these false fronts. And I don't mean COVID masks. I mean, we're all going around doing that. But um, this idea of a socially acceptable front, uh, and you made a beautiful observation. You said, what if church communities could become the place where people could just be? And, and I, I even hesitate to say something like yeah. that because what, what that could be heard as is, well, we just give up. You can believe anything, say anything, do anything, anything goes. Obviously, you know, we're talking about, Jesus is talking about human flourishing here, right? So he, he's actually saying, this is the proper way of life, which, you know, in, in, our, in our context, you know, pluralism rules. So how dare you say this is the proper way of life? But he, that's what he's saying. He's saying this is the proper way of life. This is what will lead to human flourishing. So it's obviously not anything goes. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't see how we can join Jesus on this journey until there's a sort of... Uh, uh, honesty about who we are and where we are um, in in ourselves and in, in life, and I don't think we can have that kind of honesty if we're not 
in a, in, well, if we're constantly afraid that we're going to get ejected and rejected and cancelled and pushed out uh, for the next sentence out of your mouth or the next thing you didn't post or didn't do right. So what, what Jesus does, I think, is create this community where there is just unconditional love mm. and acceptance, where there's grace and mercy, and, and then we can be honest, and then the journey begins, right? And, and, and that, that's when we can join Jesus on that journey towards the proper way of life. Right. Yeah. Ben, could you respond? Yeah, I, you know, I think I agree with that. Um, I think I loved your phrase, a place where somebody can just be. And, and I think in the church, but even out of the church the last two years, it's just been exhausting. Um, I've just been exhausted in any kind of cultural dialogue or, or any kind of space where we're trying to speak our minds and um, the church looking like a place that can just be. Um, I was trying to, you know, think through, like, what does that look like? in Jesus's walk and what does that look like? How do we find a metaphor for that in our own lives? And um, I, I was really drawn to the image of like the, the dinner table and finding the place where we all come together to eat because that is a very vulnerable space, but it's also the space where you do the basest of things and you just eat, you, you, you take care of a base need of, of eating together. But in the Israelite culture, it's also a place of, um, you would only eat with people who were in your inner circle or who are your friends. You wouldn't just eat with somebody off the street. You wouldn't just eat with somebody you just met at church. It would it'd be only for your closest people. And so then you have this this image of Jesus going to have sit down and eat a meal with tax collectors and sinners and people and saying, let's create safe space to just be and eat and, and come together. And that would have meant so much to them culturally to, to be welcomed into that first before it's like but before even having to go into the synagogue or into a place of, of holiness, right? Um, and so I don't know. I think I reflect on that and, and, and how the church can, can look like that space of, of being. Yeah, yeah. I, last week I mentioned that, um, that Wendell Berry quote where he said that he doesn't think Jesus came to find, found a, an organized religion but an unorganized one mm-hmm. where he takes it out of the temples and to the people. And so he, going into the, the homes of tax collectors and sinners are eating along with, you know, eating with them. Uh, And I I know I mentioned it earlier, but this idea of kind of affirming a fullness of humanity, um, even maybe before it's fully realized or something Mm. like that. And uh, Chris Lawrence and I were kind of hashing this out over coffee the other day. Um, And so I do find it to be a very, very kind of beautiful, uh, compelling idea. Uh, Stephen, Moving on from from this, you preached a, a sermon later on in the series about loving our enemies, and uh, you used the uh, example and the beautiful story of, of Eddie Hillisum, who was working in that that hospital between Auschwitz and the Netherlands. Correct? Yeah, and I, so I I read a few articles yeah. about her life and and uh, some of her writings, and and yeah, it made it made me cry when I was reading that stuff because it's just you suddenly realise she's talking about not a deliver us from evil is not a prayer of, from a from an abstract evil, and and loving your enemies is not a a sort of theoretical enemy or hypothetical enemy. It's, it has a face and and. Um, and and so you, you realize then that Jesus is is speaking to a crowd who also understood who the enemy was and what the evil was that right. they wanted to be delivered from and, and it was, you know, this all powerful enemy that's about to wipe us from the face of the earth. That's the evil we'd like to be delivered from. Um and so yeah, re- reading I mean reading her writings and, and her approach to this is yeah, is mind blowing. Yeah, it really is. Ben, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, um I loved this because you were absolutely right. It's not theoretical, right? The, the Romans marching down the street weren't theoretical. The Israelites and 
what Eddie was going through wasn't theoretical at all. It was right there. And so this was a big challenge for me when I heard this sermon because um, it wasn't challenging in a way of like, oh, now I've got to love my enemies, just like every single, you know, like, oh, like, here we go again. It was more of like, I don't know who my enemies are. Like, I, I feel pretty separated from, like, if, if there's somebody I disagree with right now, I don't have to be around them too much, right? I can be kind of individualized or, or kind of view what they say on social media and be like, oh, you know, we disagree, but we're not enemies. Um, and so I think for me, it was just a challenge of like, wow, I think maybe I need to engage engage with a circle that makes me uncomfortable or engage with a group where there's people who disagree with me because that's where humanity happens. And I'm not saying like join a toxic group of people, but like, <laughs> but, but, a, but a group of people, right, that, that challenge me and that I have to kind of confront some of that in myself and with them. Um, because I think when you look at the ministry of Jesus, again, he, he pulls Simon the Zealot, who'd probably killed tax collectors or people like them and then Matthew the tax collector and says come to my inner circle and sleep in the same room and I'm gonna probably have to sleep between you you know like to keep hands off each other because <laughs> it's just like really awkward and so I, you know I, I think you almost have to in this individualistic society lean into that and, and, and figure out what that looks like and, and maybe one way of thinking about it is not who who do I consider enemies but who considers me an enemy right Perhaps right that's yeah the, the way you, mm-hmm. yeah you know, I think about loving our enemies, and uh, you know, Jesus was saying, uh, talking about greeting. You know, in, in the context of, of, of first century um, Israel, greeting uh, Roman soldiers, kind of going out of your way to show love, but then that actually be kind of a subversive act because you're actually, con- it's kind of almost confrontational in in a world where you're kind of supposed to keep your just head mm-hmm. down, actually saying hello would be almost subversive. And I think about Eddie uh, doing the work that she was doing uh, in, the, in that, that hospital um, uh, on the way to, to Auschwitz. As, as like, it was like a waypoint, right, on the way to Auschwitz. And how she was there of her own accord. People are like, what is she doing here? She should not be here. Her friends were saying, don't go there. So this is like this political act um, or this revolutionary act of just placing herself there and showing love. Uh, and so it made me think of this otherworldly protest of peace that you were uh, that you alluded to in one of the the sermons um, and you brought it in strangely enough and it was the first time I'd ever heard this but uh, in conjunction with this um, the Lord's Prayer our Father yeah um, well the first the first word of the Lord's Prayer yeah. is in, in the Hebrew is father not yeah. our right so right. father and and um, essentially what Jesus is doing though is evoking at least one of the things he's doing is evoking these Key, pivotal moments, uh, two pivotal moments in Israel's history. One is where Moses marches into Pharaoh's throne room and says, let my people go. The other is where God says to David, you, you'll, you'll have a descendant whose kingdom will last forever. Both the archetypal king, the archetypal prophet, mm-hmm. And in both of those instances, Israel is specifically invited to see God as their father. Mm-hmm. And so by evoking this Mo- Moses moment, by evoking this David moment and, and, and bringing them together, uh, he is, 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 is starting off the, the Lord's Prayer as a revolutionary prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course it is, as you say, a peaceful, a, a revolution of peace into a violent world. Into a violent world, yeah. right. Ben. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that too because I'd, I'd never heard that before. Um, that it was invoking passages from the past, and that that it would have played a key role in the cultural memory of the Israelites at the time. And um, I just love being able to lean into that as well together, and and, and be like, oh, and, 
and, and the power of kind of a cultural memory and heritage being baked into this prayer um, and where we stand in society rather than just just a conversation between me and uh, my paternal father in heaven. I love the, the communal aspect of that that stood out to me mm-hmm. just as very powerful and that we're in it together and that it has a lot of heritage there. Yeah, that's great. Well, towards the end of this sermon series, we had the privilege of hearing from three guest speakers, uh, Chris Lawrence, uh, Brandon Epting, and myself were all able to preach, and I think that it's worth uh, noting that the reason that we were filling in for Stephen is that he was away uh, completing his viva, which is the oral defense um, of his doctoral thesis at at Durham in the UK. And uh, Stephen, I know you mentioned it here, but uh, congratulations, you passed. (laughs) I guess that uh, you are uh, Dr. Chung now. (laughs) I'll only answer to that. (laughs) Actually, I can't write any prescriptions, so that might cause confusion. So. <laughs> well, all I have to say is that this is probably the first um, mezzanine panel discussion with, with some actual credibility. So. <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm just so, so grateful that, uh, that it went well, and it's seven years of work. Thank, thank you, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I can go step out for that time and actually have guys like you and Brandon and Chris step in, and the church doesn't skip a beat, and it's just really... just quality stuff. <laughs> um, well, if we could just spend a little bit of time talking about those, those, guests, uh, those guest sermons, um, and, and, and thank you. I, I, it was such a, a privilege to, to, to hear from, from Chris and, and Brandon, and, and I, I enjoyed speaking as well. Um, Brandon gave some practical advice how we might go about reading the Sermon on the Mount, and I found it to be pretty, really helpful because he just sort of reminded us about uh, the the, the steps that, that we can kind of, or the, the, the filters that, that we can kind of put in place to help yeah. us read well. So I think that it was, it was really helpful. I, I listened online and, and I, I just felt that making us conscious of not just reading, don't just read the Bible. What are we, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Be a bit self-conscious about what we're doing. What are we doing when we read the Bible? And he gave there were a few things, but a couple of things that stood out. You know, he, he talked about how we, we really need to recognize that this is not just my book. It's not just your book. It's our book. It's the church's book, and so we read, do our best to read in, in communally. Um, that can be revolutionary, because that, that then if we start approaching the Bible not as my personal self-help, as, as you know, Raf was talking about earlier, um, but but actually com- reading it communally, that that could bring me out of my individualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the other thing he talked about was trying to read it in the, con- the original context in which it was written, to make the effort to do that. Um, and again, that's, that's quite radical and revolutionary because that, that then transcends my own cultural context where our social mores and opinions, they're the only thing that counts. Which now I've got to transcend that and, and reach across this chasm of time and, and perhaps um, you know, I'm pulled out of my own tribalism. So to be pulled out of my, anything that pulls me out of my tribalism and my individualism, that, that's probably a good thing. And so yeah, yeah grateful to, to Brandon for, for sort of pointing us in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, after that, we heard from Chris Lawrence, and he spoke very poignantly, I, I felt, on this idea how to not judge in a time of, of war. And Ben, I was wondering if you would uh, comment on that sermon. Yeah, so I, I thought Chris did a great job um, really wrestling. I mean, the, the do not judge thing is really hard, and he, and he talks about that with um, having strong convictions and believing what um, in the Bible says and maybe disagreeing very strongly with someone um and and still reaching forward and like loving them without giving giving ground on your convictions and things like that um but he talks a lot about you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer living in 
World War II Germany and seeing Christians before the war or even in the war and how he ministered to them. Um, but ultimately, I think he talks about, you know, the judging, judging kind of as a breakdown of all relationship, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, when it, it's okay to, he, I think Chris even talked about, it, it's okay to, like, have some conflict at times or to be direct with with each other, but it really starts with relationship and it really starts with loving the person where they're at, living with the people where they're at, yeah. understanding where they're coming from, and then just speaking truth into their lives alongside them rather than having a judgment statement. Um, and just, uh, yeah, I think, you know, Jesus talks about not judging, but he also talks about confessing to one another and bearing up under one another and even healthy conflict at times. And I think the judgment, it just doesn't belong anywhere in that mm-hmm. that kind of communal living mm-hmm. just because it shuts it all down. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Finally, the, the last sermon, uh, I, I had the privilege of, of preaching, and uh, the material that I was covering was the parable of the, the builders. And uh, Stephen, you listened to that. I, I did, and um, well done. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think, you know, you, you did a great job of straddling that line of saying, well, look, of course, there's a personal dimension to this. Yes, you know, you gave the example of Bernie Madoff. I remember when that first happened, and, and, and I was just anticipating what is the consequence of this going to be for his family? And, of course, it was catastrophic in the way you described it. Um, uh, but there was, it's also not just personal, right, because the, the picture of the, the house is a reference to the temple, mm-hmm. and I'm in my father's house, uh, and also the, the house of Israel and, and the house of God's people as a collective. Uh, and so it's very much like the mountain and the salt and light and the, and the house. They all go together, these, these metaphors, because they're constantly lifting us away from ourselves to this broader collective cultural um, communal thing that God wants to do for, with us and through all of, all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it is a very different, you know, over our conversation at the table, Raph was saying he's, he's moved the Bible now from the, in the bookstore from, from self-help, right, <laughs> to this other category because, because it's, it's this humanity-shaping project. It's this, wow, look at all that's wrong with the world. That's our responsibility collectively, and we're, we're going sh- to shoulder that together. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, this discussion today. Uh, Thanks, Ben, for joining us. Thank you. Great to hear from you. Stephen, thanks. Uh, We're going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes uh, in discussion responding to the second half of Mountain of Salt, City of Light. And uh, feel free to chat. I'll give you guys a 30-second warning at the end, and then we'll wrap up. Thank you again for joining us today for this mezzanine discussion on the Mountain of Salt uh, City of Light series. Uh, Ben and Mercy, thank you again for contributing to uh, both of the discussions. We just give them a round of applause. I think that's great. And uh, they're not here, but, you know, a big thank you to Brandon Epting and Chris Lawrence for coming in as guest speakers. And uh, Stephen, thank you for heading up this whole series. I mean, I know it's been your... Uh, your baby and your brainchild from the very beginning. So it's, it's a pleasure, and it's been really a, a fun series to do. Yeah, it's been really, really great. Well, Stephen, uh, as we wrap up, I feel like it's only appropriate that you would have uh, the last word. Sure.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.